0: Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Mark, uh, chapter 4. We're going to be focusing in on verse 35 through 41, or you can just read along in your bulletin. What we're going to read is the story of Jesus calming a great storm. And and in this this story, he asks his disciples a very important question. He says, where is your faith? It's an important question for us this morning, too, isn't it? How are we to handle the events in our lives, the storms that can paralyze us with fear? Where is our faith? Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. It's important for our lives today because until Christ returns, uh, this world will be full of many torments and trials and storms. And And so help us this morning to see how you have equipped us to understand such events and to and who to trust our lives with um, for all things, especially the storms of life. We pray for your spirit and for your spirit's wisdom and guidance. Amen. Well, when I was in Army boot camp, our drill sergeants used to lead us on something called forced marches. I'm not quite so sure why they called them forced marches. It's not like anything in boot camp was optional. (laughs) Everything was forced. Forced push-ups, forced meals, uh, forced guard duty, forced shoe shining, uh, forced mud wallowing. (laughs) Forced marches were almost a daily occurrence. Say you were supposed to go to one of the ranges or facilities to, to get some more training, like learn how to fire an M16 or throw a grenade or something like that. These ranges and facilities were three to five miles away from your barracks. And so early in the morning you get up, you'd, you'd do your PT, and you'd throw a meal in your gut, and then you'd be marching. They called them forced marches, but it really wasn't like your typical marching. It was more like speed walking. You ever see those people do speed walking? We had a couple drill sergeants that, for some, you know, diabolical reason, really seemed to enjoy leading the troops on these forced marches. One of them was Sergeant Herzina. He didn't look all that athletic, but he had really long legs and strong lungs, and he could set a storm of a pace. Also helped that he wasn't carrying a 35-pound rucksack and an M-16 right like this the whole time. But uh, when Sergeant Longlegs Zena led the way, you knew the force march was going to be a great storm of dust and sweat. Sergeant Zena was a difficult man to follow and to keep up with. As we've been going through Mark's Gospel, and as you see in all the Gospels, following after Christ is hard. It's difficult too. Throughout Mark's gospel, we were left with the impression that following Jesus is difficult. And even at times, like we saw a, f- a few weeks back, uh, following after Christ, to take up one's cross after him, in many ways feels like death itself. But follow him we must. And-, and wherever he would lead us. And yes, even into the storms of life. Now there's a version of Christianity that says that if you follow Jesus, well, you won't have any storms in life. Because of this, many Christians have mistakenly think that if they find themselves in a storm, well, there must be something wrong with their faith, or perhaps God has abandoned them. But check this out. How did the disciples in this story find themselves in the storm? It was Jesus's idea. Jesus was the one in verse 35 said, let us go across to the other side. It was his idea to travel at night. uh, And now look what it got them in. It got them into a storm of a lifetime. Have you ever felt that way? God, I've tried to live a faithful life. I'm trying to trust you. I'm trying to honor you with my life. But look where I am. I feel as if I'm all alone. I feel like the world is in danger of falling in on me. God, don't you care that I'm perishing? When we find ourselves in the storms of life, what is it that tends to grip us? We see it in this passage. It's fear. We become fearful. The weight of life can become unbearable. And it doesn't seem as if the cavalry is going to arrive to rescue us anytime soon. If things don't change, I will be a goner. My marriage will be shot. My career will be over. My my chance of having a spouse will be done with. My chance of having kids will be lost. And, And then fear sets in, right? In our passage, though, Jesus calls his disciples to not fear, but to have faith. Why are you still afraid, Asked Jesus. Where's your faith? You see, faith, rightly placed, drives out fear. So how are we to handle the events in our lives, the storms that paralyze us with fear? We are to have faith in him who still calms the seas. He still calms the storms in our lives. Here's the point we're going to see this morning. Because even the winds and the, and the waves obey Jesus. That is, because he is the sovereign Lord who wields power over nature in all things, we must trust him with every storm of our lives. We're going to look at that by looking at three main points. First, we're going to look at the great storm, then the great calm, and then the great fear. We see all of those words in our text. First, the great storm. Have you seen the infomercials for that product called uh, FlexShot? The marketers of FlexShot evidently wanted to make a point that their product is so good at patching little holes that they went and they got a cannon and a tin boat, metal boat and they shot not one but five giant cannonballs right through the bottom of the boat leaving these gaping holes. They tore up the boat. And then they applied the flex shot to, to seal it. And then they put it out on water and it floated. And they put a man in it saying, Buy flex shot. Something like that, right? What's the point? Well, the point they're trying to make is if flex shot can fill uh, the greatest of holes, things that you're never going to have to try to fill ever in your lifetime, well, then surely they can uh, fill the little bitty pinholes uh, for your work project around the house. The idea here in our story, though, is is similar but different. The storm that Jesus miraculously calms is so great that we must conclude that if he can calm that storm, then surely he's capable of calming any storm that we may have in our lives. And we need to hear that, don't we? Well, the day started out fine. Verse 35, uh, Mark narrates, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go to the other side. Now, where were they on, on that day? Well, here's the Sea of Galilee, and they would have been on the western side, in mostly Jewish region region uh, of Galilee. And Jesus says, We want to go to the other side, to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. See, Jesus was, was, had been teaching these Uh, huge crowds in uh, in and around the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and the crowds got so big that on that day he had to actually go out into a boat just a few feet out uh, from the shoreline in order to be able to teach the crowds without getting uh, trampled upon and uh, knocked into the water he had a long day there healing and teaching and then he says let's move out now where were they going? They were leaving the mostly Jewish region in Galilee and they're heading across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern shore, to a mostly Gentile, pagan territory, a region called the Decapolis. That's where they were going. And what they were going to see as soon as they landed, if you read a little bit further, what what happens right when they land, they are met by a demon-possessed man. So many demons reside in this man that they name themselves Legion. Jesus is about ready to go over and demonstrate that he has power over demonic forces. But first, he needs to get through a storm, a storm where he demonstrates that he has the great power over a great storm to calm it. Now, if you look at pictures of the Sea of Galilee, it looks like quite a tranquil place. You know, most people, when they travel there, they take these nice little pictures, and look how pretty and calm the sea is. And it just doesn't seem like you could have a miraculous uh, storm there. The sea itself is only slightly larger than the island of Manhattan. It's 17 miles tall, and at its widest point, it's no wider than 8 miles wide. It's not a very big sea. I mean, if you were to compare it to Lake Erie, Lake Erie is, is 50 times bigger than the Sea of Galilee. And on its biggest stormiest days, the seas only reach five or six feet high. So is Mark making up a story? Is he like making, making up a big, a big story about this storm? Well, that's not the case. Um, the Sea of Galilee is known for its sudden and monstrous squalls. The, the, the topography of the region has something to do with it. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet, almost 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by hills. And then just thirty-five miles, 34 miles to the north is a mountain range. Mount Hermon is there. And, and, the, and the mountains reach over 9,000 feet high. So what happens is you get all these winds swirling around and causing a, a great turmoil. And the next thing you know is, is you've got a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee. Mark calls it a great windstorm. The Greek word he uses is lelops. It it means like a hurricane, right? This is no ordinary storm. How do we know this? Well, in that boat with Jesus are seasoned fishermen who've been on that sea many, many, many times, and they think they are about to perish. Yes, this is quite the storm. Now, the disciples were in a small fishing vessel. We know a bit about these fishing vessels. There's, there's mosaic pictures of them from way back when, but they also unearthed, archaeologists unearthed one of these vessels, and it's actually a little bit larger than you think. They're 30 feet long and 10 feet wide. So if you're a fisherman, you could have your crew and a big catch of fish, but if there's, you're not going fishing, you can fit 20, 24 people in this boat. And there was oars on each side. There was... Uh, two sets of oars on each side and it would have taken about two hours to row across the the Sea of Galilee and oh yes in the stern there was a covered galley and inside Jesus slept on a cushion so tired was Jesus that he was able to sleep through a perilous storm at some point the storm got so wild and crazy I guess the disciples realized that they couldn't fix the problem themselves The waves started swamping the boat. They must have screamed something like, we're going to die here and now. Wake the master. Get the Lord. This whole trip was his idea anyway. Now look what we get in return. We leave to follow Jesus and now we're just going to die in this boat, the bottom of the sea. Wake the Lord. No doubt they shook him, shouting at the top of their voices. In verse 38 we read, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In Matthew's gospel, other words are said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And then Luke's account says, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now people will say, See, this is why you can't believe the Bible. It's, it's full of contradictions. You know, you can't believe these stories. And perhaps you're thinking, Well, well Mark, what words did he really say? How about, how about they said all of those words? There's at least 12 disciples. Lord, Lord, Master, Teacher, we're dying, we're perishing. Don't you care? Save us. Do something. That boat was filled with shouts of men who were fearing for their lives. It's dangerous to be a disciple. When he calls you and you follow him, you will find yourself in uncharted waters. You may undergo physical storms or storms of a spiritual nature or both. You may be in the company of fellow disciples, or you may be all alone. As my seminary professor wrote in his commentary, he says, the physical storm outside is matched by the spiritual storm inside them. Now, the disciples responded favorably and unfavorably. Rightly, they came to Jesus. They called him Lord. They believed that in some way he might be able to save them. But they also, uh, they say, we're perishing. They're panic stricken, and they really don't believe he can do much. They believe they're going down with the maelstrom. Isn't that true with us? We we commit our lives to Christ. We give our lives to him. And after following him, we can find ourselves in the midst of a storm. When we say, here I am, I'm the only Christian in my school or with my friends or at my workplace, I don't fit in. When I try to live a life that honors God, sometimes things get harder rather than easier. I feel like I'm perishing. Do you not care? All who follow Christ encounter great storms in life. That's the great storm. Now for the great calm. I hope you see two things. One was that Jesus was calm in the midst of the storm, and Jesus calmed the storm. Now, how could Jesus sleep through such a terrible storm like this? Some, some, there, some say, well, he, just, he was faking it, you know, so that he could test his disciples. But I don't think we need to go that far. I think he was just tired, bone tired. So tired that he slept. When the boat was rocking back and forth, he needed sleep. He was human, just like all of us. He was exhausted. He'd been teaching all day, healing all day. He'd been up late at night praying. And furthermore, check this out: Did he not trust his his Father in Heaven to protect his life and mission on Earth, even while he slept? Jesus was asleep, and yet he was not in control. His father was. He knew that his father had given him a mission. And as my friend Randy Mayfield says, there is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. There's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. But if that's true, then why would God, the master of the winds and the waves and storms, allow this tempest to, to, to rise and threaten the life of Jesus and his disciples? I think we must conclude that, that God, uh, in his providence and in his sovereignty, had a reason for the storm. What could his purpose be? Ultimately, the storms God allows in our lives draw us closer to him, work for his good purpose in us, and give us cause to praise him. Earlier, Melissa read from Psalm 107. It's a psalm that, if you read it, it sketches out four different scenes from which we see um, pictures of how God always delivers his people. In the last scene, the sailors are tossed out of violent sea. God raised up a stormy wind. He lifted the seas. And the, and the sailors were reeling, and they were staggering as if they were, were, were drunken men. And they were, they were at their wit's end and then what do they do? In verse 28, we read, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the ways of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The great scholar Derek Kidner makes this comment on the psalm. He says, The storm teaches that in a world of gigantic forces, we live by permission, not by good management. My friends, we we live by permission of a holy and righteous sovereign God, not by good management of our lives. No matter how good we are at managing our lives, to keep ourselves out of the storms, we find ourselves in the storms of life. And no matter how capable we are, capable at extracting ourselves from the storms of life, the great calm comes when we cry out to God. That psalm sounds a lot like what took place in our story, right? Jesus does exactly what God does in that psalm. He calms the storm. Observe how he proceeds, though. The disciples shake Jesus awake. They're shouting at him. He rises and steadies his feet. And then what does he do? Did he try to manage the chaos? Did he, did he try to calm people's nerves so he could put them all to work doing the right things to rescue the ship? Did he even get on his knees like a priest or a prophet to pray to God Almighty to intervene? No. What did we see him doing? He spoke directly to the sea and the wind And they obeyed. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Jesus simply spoke and the sea and the wind became calm. Now the Greek word here means to uh, to muzzle or to silence. It's if Jesus is saying, shut up to the storm. And it stops what happens? Verse 39, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The great storm became a great calm. Now you might count it as coincidence that the winds died down, right, as Jesus spoke the words. But we know this was a miracle. Why? Because the seas instantly died down. You know, when the storm goes by, uh, how, you know, it takes a while for the seas to go down. But here in this case, the seas were instantly calm this was a miracle these the words of jesus what we see here is the word uh, jesus has the has the power over the natural laws jesus has power over nature itself now we all try to do this at times in our lives don't we uh, are you a golfer right you know uh, you know, you're shouting at the ball all the time mid-flight. Get out, get out, get out. No, no, right? Uh, you know, this past, past week, we had guys night out. We went bowling. There were 17 of us. You should have seen us, you know, trying to coax the ball. Left or right? No, 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 no. Left, left, left. Right, right? As, as if your leaning's going to help it anyway, right? Uh, last Thursday, I watched one of my daughters play middle school basketball. And, you know, you don't have any idea how many times I tried to speak that ball into the basket. <laughs> but it didn't work. Not so with Jesus. Jesus commands nature and it obeys. Why is this? Because Jesus is God. He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. And so he is in control. Now, in this case, why would God allow such a horrific storm to engulf the disciples' lives? God had a plan for the storm. God wanted the disciples' eyes to be opened as to just who it was they were following. This is no ordinary teacher or ordinary prophet. Jesus had the ability to control nature. And then a few minutes later, when they land on the shore, they're going to see that Jesus not only has power over the natural realm, but he has power over the supernatural realm as well when he casts the demons out of the possessed man. In the very next story as well in Mark, we see that not only does he have power over physical laws and, and spiritual laws, but he has power over death itself as he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead. For now, though, the disciples need to see that Jesus is capable of bringing peace in the midst of any storm. They needed to see that, and so too we. Now for the great fear. You know, the fear that the disciples had during the middle of the storm, as great as it was, gives way to an even greater fear when the storm is calmed. First, let's look at the fear they had in the midst of the storm. In verse 40, after rebuking the wind... Uh, jesus says to his disciples he said to them why are you so afraid have you still no faith what's going on two rhetorical questions one uh, about their fear or cowardice and the other one was about their lack of faith the two go hand in hand now first let me affirm that there is such a thing as as healthy fear uh there uh, you know a healthy fear of heights uh keeps you from falling off of cliffs right you know, when your boss says that the quality of your work needs to improve a bit, there's a there's a healthy fear that maybe you need to step it up a little bit around the office. There's nothing wrong with a healthy fear, unless, of course, you got a really mean boss. But anyway, but we need to see though. There's a there's a there's a difference between healthy fear and all-consuming dread. Once again, Dan Doriani, uh, one of my seminary professors and pastor, and a friend of mine, he he writes this. He says. Check this out. Irrational fear resists comfort. Isn't that interesting? Irrational fear resists comfort. Maybe you've seen that. Someone who's got an ir- irrational fear. You try to try to comfort them with words, you try to bring solace, but they just won't listen. Right? Maybe, maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Okay, he goes on to say: irrational fear extinguishes faith. Then he goes on to say, though, Godly fear recognizes the threat but is tempered by confidence in God. When dangers loom, we should remember that God masters storms. (laughs) And so we should put aside irrational fears. As the disciple John wrote, perfect love casts out fear. How can that be so? Well, if we could but grasp how much God loves us, that that he would send his own son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. If we could but understand the perfect love of God coupled with his all-surpassing power to meet every need that we have in life, if we could but grasp that the same God who whirls galaxies into existence is our heavenly father, well, then fear would take its right size and its right shape. So when Jesus asked his disciples, why are you so afraid? He was giving them a moment for introspection, for a little self-reflection. You see, the, G- the disciples, they had seen many powerful things being done by Jesus. Uh, demons being cast out. People being healed of lifelong illnesses. So much so that he's getting mobbed wherever he goes. Jesus. Uh, they've seen Jesus forgive sin. They, they, they scratch their heads and they go, well, only God can forgive sins. The, it's, so it's a fair question, Jesus asks. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The antidote... To fear is faith. See, fear and faith are interrelated. Each drives out the other. That's why Jesus is calling his disciples to have faith in him. It's true, right? If you know you've completed the homework, and you've done all your stuff in class, you've listened well, uh, you you can have faith, you can have confidence that you're going to do well on the exam. Faith casts out an irrational fear. There will be a healthy fear that keeps you in your class notes until test time. But faith drives out fear. You would think after Jesus calmed this storm that his disciples would be like jumping for joy and like doing the ancient equivalent of a high five. I don't know what that would be, but, you know, who knows? I don't know. Uh, You'd think they would be like, totally excited and joyful. And and yet, um, after Jesus calmed the storm, they were more fearful than before. But it was a different type of fear. Look at verse 40. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, The English phrase, filled with great fear, uh, there's two similar Greek words, phobeo which, uh, and then phobia. Phobeo's is the, the verb and phobia is the noun. It's where we get the uh, phobos, right? where we get the word phobia, right? Uh, and, and so in the, the actual Greek, if you were to, you know, to, it really reads like this. They feared with a great fear. In other words, they were terrified. What's going on? Their irrational fear of a storm is replaced by a healthy fear of the divine. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then the question is left hanging in the air. And the assumption is, well, only God can do that. Now, the reader of Mark's gospel already knows who Jesus is. The very first sentence in Mark's gospel is what? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know from the very beginning, as we read through this gospel, of Jesus' divinity. But the disciples are just now grasping it. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? We know the rest of the gospel story. The one who has power over, over the wind and the waves also has power over sin and, and death if you're familiar with how Mark's gospel unfolds, you will know that the disciples are kind of really kind of slow at coming to an identity of who Jesus is and why he came to this earth. The one who seems to get it right when Jesus was dying on the cross and he dies, who does Mark point us to? Was it the disciples? No, it was a Roman centurion. The leader of the crucifixion battalion himself. Here's what, we, here's what we read in Mark's words. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The centurion of all people gets Jesus' identity right. He comes to the proper conclusion. And, and what was it that caused the centurion to marvel at Jesus' divinity? It was how he weathered the storm, the storm of the cross. Once again, Mark's words, when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way, something about Jesus' death that caused him to marvel, in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. The centurion who was tasked by Pontius Pilate to have his men beat and flog Jesus to the verge of dying. The centurion who watched as his men mocked Jesus by putting a a royal robe of purple robe on him and pressing a crown of thorns into his head until he bled. The same centurion who watched Jesus struggle to carry his cross up the hill. The centurion watched, who watched as the, as the crucified man next to Jesus mocked him. And who also saw as one of them later turned in faith to Jesus. They, the same centurion heard Jesus say, Today you will be with me in paradise. How could a man hanging on a cross say that? The same centurion who witnessed Jesus dying in agony and yet still say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The centurion saw the way in which Jesus carried the sins of the world upon himself. He saw Jesus in the midst of the storm, and he saw the manner in which Jesus went down with the ship. God wasn't there to rescue him that day, he was all alone. In the boat. He was abandoned. On the cross, Jesus said, as he was bearing the full weight of your sin and my sin, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He very easily could have said, Father, do you not care that I am perishing? In the instant that Jesus took all our sin and bore the fullness of our sin as waves against him, he truly was abandoned by God. you might be saying, what kind of God would have abandoned his own son on the cross as he's crying out in agony? The God who sent him there to do that. The God who sent him into the storm. If if Jesus did not do that, we could not have peace with God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages is what you get paid right you earn it guess what our sins earn us death and eternal separation from god clear and simple jesus entered the storm of our sin he took it upon himself he bore it and he died like we deserve he went down with the ship but he rose again that same jesus who who went down with the ship who took our sins on the cross has risen uh, from the grave. And so too, all you who trust in him. Jesus went down with the ship and he, and he took your sins with him, never to be seen again. That's why we rejoice. That's why when God delivers people on the ocean or uh, from the perilous waves, they, they extol him with praises. How much more so we who have been spared the great storm of our sin and death. Praise God for his deliverance through his own son who was abandoned for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I want us to have just a couple, few points of application before we wrap up and come to the Lord's table. When storms enter our life, what is it that we need? Faith. We need a perspective that comes from faith. When you find yourself in the midst of a storm in life, it's good to ask a question. You know, why is this storm, why is God, who is sovereign over storms, allowing this into my life? Perhaps I'm like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah was a prophet given a task to go to the pagan lands of the of Ninevites. And God was going to have him preach uh, forgiveness and they were going to repent. And, then, and what, is, what does Jonah do? He says, I don't want to do that. And he gets on a boat and he sails the opposite direction towards Tarshish. All right, uh sounds Tarshish. Uh, and, and so a great storm comes on the water, and Jonah knows, oh shoot, it's because of me. I'm on the ship, I'm going the wrong way. Uh, he gets thrown into the sea, the sea calms, and miraculously God gets Jonah to where God wanted him to go. When, when storms come into your life, maybe you need to say, am I like Jonah? Maybe, God, maybe I'm running from God, and he wants me to stop and turn and come back. But you know, every time storms come in our lives, it's not because we're running from him. Sometimes storms come into our life when we are seeking first the kingdom of God. Perhaps we could say, am I like Paul? You read in the letters to the Corinthians, there's a long list of things that Paul endured for the sake of Jesus. A number of them, he was shipwrecked a number of times, including floggings and beatings. Paul, why, uh, Paul endured so many storms in his life because he, in fact, was following after Christ. And sometimes when you follow Christ, you find yourselves in the midst of a storm. Paul says that we can, he can delight in his weakness, in his insults, in his hardships, and persecutions. He says, because when he is weak, that's when he's strong. He has learned to be content in every circumstance because he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So we must come to see that storms are opportunities for growth because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character which produces hope and hope in Christ Jesus never fails. James encourages believers to be joyful in various trials because the testing of our faith Produces perseverance and Christian maturity. Peter says that such trials come so that what? So that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When commentator Mark Strauss comments, we need to look at life's storms not as disasters but as opportunities to see God's transforming power at work in our lives. Oh, that we would have that perspective of faith. How does this teaching this morning challenge you? When the storms of life hit, what is your typical response? Do you live by fear? Do you turn to yourself and your own strengths? Do you use your expertise to extricate yourself? Do you take over the helm and try to navigate away from the storm? Do you row harder? Do you bail more and faster? Do you yell and shout? Do you complain to God? Don't you even care that I'm perishing? Or do you respond in faith and turn to Christ and ask him to give you peace? Christian, you know who it is, who even the winds and the waves obey. It's your champion. It's your savior the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who endured the storm of the cross for you, the one who went down in the storm for you. He now captains your life. And yes, when you follow him, he may lead you into storms. But when he does so, he will give you his peace. There is no calm like the calm that our Lord gives us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you meet us in the midst of our storms. We thank you, Jesus, that you have carry the burden of our sin as a tempest upon yourself. uh, and You bore that penalty so that we need not. We pray that we would um, comprehend more fully what this passage teaches us, uh, that faith in Christ drives out fear, and that you are watching over us, Heavenly Father, in all circumstances of our lives. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you press these truths deep into our heart this morning. Amen.